It is with great joy that I ask you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel. And I'm going to begin standing up, and if I sit down, you'll understand, right? But here's the thing, if I sit down, you have to stand up. No, you can remain seated. I trust that as you approach the day that we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, that your heart will be full, as mine has been. My intention was to have a little mini-series in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 1 and 2, and to focus on the three different sections, a section that spoke of the ancestral origin of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and have an entire sermon on that, and then to direct our attention to chapter 2, um, well, the end of chapter 1, verses 18 to chapter 2, concerning the birth or the physical origin of Jesus Christ, and then beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1, running all the way through the end, the geographic origin of Jesus Christ. The ancestral origin, the physical origin, and the geographic origin of Christ. And had we had an entire sermon on the ancestral origin of Jesus Christ, we would have focused on the sin of His people. We would have spoken of the sin of Abraham and the sin of David and how two, those two men were given covenant promises. We have in the Old Testament the covenant that God gave to Abraham and David and the incredible promises that were found in those covenants. And we would have focused on those two men. We would have focused on the women that are mentioned in this genealogy. Most genealogies do not contain the records of women. And yet the genealogy of Jesus does. And yet when you look at the lives of those women, you discover that they're identified, many of them, as harlots or fornicators. The story of incest is found there. And even in Mary's case, you have in Luke's gospel a hymn that she pens, and yet she has to acknowledge that she needs a Savior, and it is her God. And then we would have focused on the references to Babylon four times. The deportation to Babylon is mentioned in that section. And uh, I might come back to that today, but in focusing on the deportation... We are led face to face with Israel's disobedience to the covenant demands. For God said in the book of Deuteronomy, if they did not keep the covenant, they would go into captivity. They would be deported. And ten northern tribes were deported in 722. And the last two tribes were deported in 586. And if you carefully read your Old Testament, you will discover that those two events... The deportation in 722 and the deportation in 586 
almost encompass the story of the Old Testament. Two major events. That would have been the sermon ending with, call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. And here are his people. Here's a list of his people. It includes men and women, but also in that genealogy are Gentiles. Ruth, a Gentile. For his people include the nations of the world, Jew and Gentile. And his coming is to save them from their sins. I would like today to focus on these two chapters looking at the dreams of Joseph. The word dream, as is found in this text, appears six times in the New Testament. And all six of them are in the Gospel of Matthew. Peter had a vision in Acts, not a dream. But when you look at the six dreams that are recorded here in the Gospel of Matthew, you discover that one of those dreams was Pilate's wife's dream concerning Christ. And another of those dreams were wise men dream, being warned not to report back to Herod. But the other four dreams were dreams that came to Joseph. And in chapter 1 and verse 20, you have the first dream. In chapter 2 and verse 13, you have the second dream. In chapter 2 and verse 19, you have the third dream. And the fourth one is found in verse 22. Four dreams. If you include the wise men in this passage, there's five. There are five geographic regions mentioned in these chapters. The city of Bethlehem in chapter 2 and verse 1, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8. A focus on Bethlehem. And then there is a second region, geographic region mentioned and it is Egypt in verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, and verse 19. Bethlehem, Egypt. There is a third town mentioned in verse 18. A voice was heard from Ramah. And then there is the region called the land of Israel in verse 21. 
And then there is a fifth location, Nazareth. Five dreams, including the dream to the wise men. Five locations. And then there are five prophecies. The first prophecy is found in chapter 1 and verse 23. The second prophecy is found in chapter 2 and verse 6. The third prophecy is found in chapter 2 and verse 15. The fourth fourth prophecy is found in chapter 2, verse 18, and the fifth prophecy is found in chapter 2 and verse 23. Five dreams, five locations, five prophecies. And I want to look at the significance of all of those as they relate to the four dreams of Joseph. The very first dream came to Joseph when he was engaged to marry. Their marriage had not been consummated. They were not together. And yet she was found to be with child. And Joseph, the Bible says, was a righteous man and was not interested in putting her away in a public way, divorcing her. No, his intention would be that he would do it in a very private manner so as not to embarrass her. And while he was contemplating on those things, the Word of God says in verse 20 of chapter 1 that the angel of the Lord... came to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she'll bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken of the Lord through the prophet. Now verse 23, Behold, Now note this, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. What book of the Old Testament is this taken from? A little louder. Isaiah's prophecy. When did Isaiah write his prophecy? Say that again. Let me tell you, this is so significant. And to understand this, you've got to get a picture of the entire Old Testament. Hang with me today. You're going to get some good theology. When God came and made a promise to Abraham that he would have the land of Israel as an inheritance for his people, 
and that someone would come from his loins who would be a blessing to all the nations of the world and made that promise. You know that Abraham and his descendants left that land for Egypt when there was a famine, right? And he took the family of Jacob and his 12 sons to Egypt. And they remained there in Goshen, separated from the Egyptians. And in the nursery of Egypt, they became a large nation, right? And then they were redeemed from Egypt and taken back to the land, yes or no? From Egypt to the land. And as soon as they got to the land, God came to that nation. On the third month, on the third day, after they had been redeemed to Mount Sinai, and he states in Exodus chapter 20, before he ever lists the demands of the covenant, he said, I'm the God who redeemed you from Egypt. Now here's the covenant demands. Obey them. Ten commandments. That generation did not believe God to inherit the land. They would die. Their children would be on the verge of entering the land 40 years later. And God comes to them a second time and gives them the demands of the covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Are you with me? And just before he gives those covenant demands, he reminds them that I am the God who redeemed you from Egypt. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. And you read the book of Deuteronomy very carefully, and you discover that God said to the nation of Israel that if you do not keep the Ten Commandments, I'm going to do something with you. What did God tell them would happen if they did not obey the covenant? You guys know I'm deaf. You're going to have to scream at me here. They're going to be scattered. You're going to lose your inheritance. You're not going to remain in the land. And so in, 20, in 722, 722 B.C., God comes to ten northern tribes, and he begins to scatter them. And the prophet who is on the scene at that time is Isaiah. It's Isaiah who is prophesying. It is the prophet Isaiah from which this promise comes. In chapter 7 and verse 14, in a section, I understand that Chad a couple weeks ago preached on Emmanuel, God with us. And this prophecy is found in a section of Isaiah's prophecy called the book of Emmanuel. For there are going to be many references to God being with us in that section that begins in chapter 7 and runs through chapter 12. The book of Emmanuel. You're going to be scattered because you can't keep the covenant. 
But tucked in the book of Isaiah are also what we call the servant songs. They begin in chapter 42. They run all the way through chapter 53. And in the section of the servant songs, you find this incredible promise. You ten are going into captivity because you can't keep the covenant, but I'm going to send someone who will be the covenant for you. He is the covenant keeper. He's going to come on his way. You are disobedient because you're a descendant of Adam, but the covenant keeper is going to come. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Now, who is the virgin? You've got to go way back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. And it's in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve had disobeyed God that God came along and He promised that there would be the seed of the woman, the seed of the virgin. And what Isaiah is saying, you're going into captivity because you can't keep the covenant. The covenant keeper is coming, and he's going to be the seed of the woman. And Matthew reaches back to the prophet Isaiah and says that this one who is born of Mary is none other than the covenant for the people, the servant of the Lord, the seed of a woman. And you also note this as you read the gospel account in Luke, that just as Joseph was told that the, this one born is, is by the Holy Spirit, you read Luke's gospel and you find that again, he is the Son of the Most High. This one is the seed of the woman. He is the Son of Man. This one is the Son of the Most High. He's the Son of God. And call His name Jesus because He's going to save His people from their sin. What a dream He had. And so He took His engaged wife, married her, and he had no physical relationship with her until she brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. By the way, don't miss the little word until. It does not say that Joseph kept Mary a perpetual virgin. No, the text says he kept her a virgin until. And the language states that they had physical relations afterwards. And the Word of God records children that Joseph and Mary had, brothers and sisters of the Lord. That is the first dream of Joseph. I don't know why my first slide didn't come up there, but we'll ignore that. The reason is because this little clicker isn't working, okay? 
I'm going to try to do something here, okay? It'll be okay. Don't get too excited. First dream, first prophecy. We just covered that. We're going to go to the second one, which was the slide I had up there, just checking to make sure I could advance it. All right, now we come to chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, where we read of the birth of Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, don't miss that, by the way. Matthew's entire gospel is to present that Jesus is the king. He's the king of the Jews. And so in the first chapter, he talks about his ancestry, and he names all kinds of kings. And then he comes to chapter 2, and Herod the king is on the throne. But Herod was not truly Jewish. He didn't have the right to be a king because of his birth. Matter of fact, at this time in history, the Roman Empire was at odds with the Eastern Parthenian Empire, and Israel was right in between them. They were like a buffer state. And Rome wanted Israel to side with them. And so they made Herod king of the Jews, even though he was not born to be king of the Jews. And so an emphasis is on Herod in this section. But then there's an emphasis on the wise men who are coming from the Parthenian Empire, wise men that are from the Babylonian era, Wise men that had had the prophecy of Daniel when Daniel was in Babylon, and Daniel gave us the exact year of the Messiah's death, hundreds of years before he was ever born, and these wise men knew of that prophecy. They knew of the prophecy of Balaam, where Balaam, talking about the coming of the Messiah, spoke of this brilliant shining in the east. And historically, we know that the Parthenian Empire was without a king. And they were looking for a new ruler that could be their king. And so they read the prophecy of Daniel. They knew the prophecy of, of Balaam. They saw this shining, and they followed that shining. And that came all the way from the Parthenian Empire to where Herod was. That's the setting. And they arrive in the Jerusalem saying, where is he that's been what? Born king of the Jews. Herod was not. For we saw his shining in the east, and we've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, the text says he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with you. I'll tell you why. We think of three wise men, right? These, we three kings of Orientar. They're pictured in our nativity saints. That's usually what we see. That was not what Herod saw. 
that morning, he didn't wake up to three kings mounted on camels. He woke up and he looked out his window, and there were probably hundreds of these kingmakers mounted on Persian steeds. He hears the horse feet. He looks out. He sees the steam coming out of the nostrils of these horses. And he sees this mass of people looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. And he's troubled because he wasn't. And then the text says all Jerusalem is troubled with him because we know historically that when King Herod got upset, he did some incredibly horrible things with the murder of people. And if he's troubled, Jerusalem's troubled because he's troubled. Are you with me? See, I got I, 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 hey, listen, I got till 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. I wasn't here last week or the week before. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born, and they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come forth, as a, forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. This comes from the prophet Micah. If you were to go back to your Old Testament, we don't have the time to do it today, but if you were to go back to your Old Testament, you would discover that there's an emphasis from the prophet Micah on God's love for the people, the nations of the world. And you would also discover that Micah is writing at the time when the ten northern tribes are getting ready to be taken into captivity because they can't keep the covenant. He's writing during the same time that Isaiah is writing. And yet promised in the book, written when ten tribes are being deported, is a coming king born in the city of Bethlehem. He's coming forth to be a ruler. He's coming forth to shepherd his people. And his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. You know what we learn about the Messiah? You know what we learn about Christ? He might have begun in time as a human at his birth. But he's the Son of God. Go into the eternal past. And he's always been here. That's who he is. The promise of a ruler. over the nation of Israel. And you know the story. Herod secretly calls the Magi. Hey, what time did the star appear? He sends them to Bethlehem. Go search diligently for the child. When you found him, report to me. I want to come and worship him. And so after the king had said that, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went before them and came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, 
They fell on the ground, worshipped him, opened their treasures, presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country another way. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Mary and Joseph were poor. You know how we know they were poor? Because when he was eight days old and they took him to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord, there was a sacrifice that was required. And if you were a person of means, you could present a certain sacrifice. But if you were poor, you could give a pigeon. You know what they gave? The gift of poverty. And God made a way to preserve that family in Egypt with the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. Gold that speaks of Christ being a king. Frankincense that speaks of him being a priest. The myrrh that speaks of his death. So many things can be found in those gifts. That that having happened, you come to chapter 2 in verse 13. And that is the second dream that came to Joseph. And they are, thank you, you know which arrow to push? It's that bottom center one right there. That one right there. The second dream in Egypt. Covering up my notes, baby. Here, put it right down here. I like it. Thank you. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And so Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night, and he left for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt have I called my son. Second dream, third prophecy. This prophecy, which is found in chapter 2 and verse 15, is taken out of what prophet? You have a marginal note in your Bible? If you got your Bible on your phone, they don't have those things, right? It's the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea, he is prophesying roughly between 755 and 721. He is prophesying the same time that Isaiah is prophesying, that Micah is prophesying. Hosea is prophesying too. And if you go back and read that entire book, you discover that it is a book about God's love for His people. And he pictures that through the marriage 
of the prophet Hosea with his wife, who becomes a fornicator, leaves her husband, sells herself to lovers, and yet Hosea is there taking care of his wife. And his wife comes back to him. He doesn't divorce her and leave her. But God uses the marriage of that man to picture the relationship he has with his own people. Are you with me? But as you read the prophet Hosea, who's writing just before the ten tribes go into captivity, he's promising hope for them. He's promising that there's going to be a return to the land. He's promising that there's going to be a Messiah to come, that there's going to be a Redeemer, that there's going to be restoration. There's hope for Israel. And section after section, here's a list of their disobedience to the covenant, and he names their sins, and it's followed by a section of hope. And then he goes and he names the disobedience to the Ten Commandments and a section about their hope and restoration. Disobedience to the covenant, but there's hope to come. That's what his prophecy is all about. And as you read that, Once again, you're brought face to face with the inability of Israel to keep the covenant. But the promise of someone who's going to come and redeem and rescue and restore. Now, why Egypt? Why did the Lord send Jesus and Joseph to Egypt? And by the way, we don't even have the time to begin to touch on this today. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Christ. Joseph. Do you know that in Matthew's genealogy, we are told who Joseph's father was? Look at it in your Bible. It's found in the first 18 verses. I want you to tell me as loudly as you can, Who was the father of Joseph? I mean, this is an open book quiz now. Not even testing your memory. A little louder, you know I'm hard of hearing. Come on, I don't have to do your homework for you, do you? Do I have to tell you what verse it's found in? How about look at verse 16? I help you out there. Who? How many of you have your Bible here today? Look at chapter 1, verse 16, and tell me who Joseph's father was. Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph. Joseph. Joseph! Go back to the Old Testament. There are hundreds of references to Joseph. But there is one whose story consumes chapter 37 through 50 of the book of Genesis. And it's Joseph, right? Yes. Who was Joseph's father in Genesis? Jacob. Oh, don't miss this. 
The Joseph of Genesis' father was Jacob, and he had dreams, yes? Yes. His father was Jacob. Who was his mother? Rachel. And I come to Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, and I've got another Joseph whose father is Jacob, and in the same context were found the name Rachel. Don't miss that. There is something happening in the Word of God, and that is that God is using the history of Israel and their people to tell us a story about the coming Messiah. There are tremendous parallels to Joseph and Jesus. But when Jesus goes down into Egypt to have his life preserved, you are to think of the story of his people Israel who had to leave the land of famine and go to Egypt to have their life preserved. But they're not going to remain there. There's going to be an exodus and a redemption back to the land. Because Jesus was preserved in Egypt, and he was rescued from Egypt to go back to the land. Are you with me? I find stuff like this fascinating in the Bible. Because Jesus is identifying with his people. And his people are Jews and Gentiles. And just as Israel in the Old Testament is called the servant of the Lord, even so Jesus is the servant of the Lord. And even the nation of Israel is called the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, we could just develop that whole theme here, but it wouldn't help me finish this. But we find Jesus in Egypt in a prophecy that speaks of ten tribes going into captivity, but being rescued through redemption because of God's love for His people. For Christ is a Redeemer. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. That brings me to the third location and the fourth prophecy. Verse 16, Herod saw he'd been tricked by the Magi. He became very enraged. He sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem, all of its vicinity, from two years old and under. Why two years old and under? The wise men found Jesus in a house as a young child. We know that after he was circumcised on the eighth day, he left Jerusalem, and we're told that he went back to Nazareth. I believe that this shining star led them not to a little manger scene, but most probably to Nazareth. 
Don't quote me on that. Two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi, then what had been spoken through Jer... Who's the, who's, who's, who's the writing prophet now? Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard where? In Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Wow. Man, I, I, I got to share this with you. I gotta, you got to paint the picture. You got you to fill in the whole page here. Or you won't feel the weight of what these two chapters are all about. Jeremiah is the prophet, the major prophet who's preaching. When the two southern tribes go into captivity in 586 B.C., why are they going into captivity? Disobedience to the, to the covenant. Disobedience to the Ten Commandments. Ten tribes go into captivity in 722. Isaiah is on the scene. Hosea is on the scene. Mike is on the scene. But the last two tribes are going into captivity, and Jeremiah is on the scene. And I've been reading through the prophet Jeremiah for the past week. And that prophecy is going to focus on the sins and disobedience to the covenant demands. But just like Isaiah who writes of the covenant for the people in chapter 42 and 49. You can't keep it, but he's coming. He's the covenant for you. He's the covenant keeper. Uh, It's Jeremiah when the last two tribes go into captivity that contain chapter 31 and a promise of a new covenant. We celebrated the Lord's table today. We celebrate it every day to remi- every Sunday to remind us of the new covenant work of Christ. And those two tribes are promised new covenant. They can't keep it. But someone is coming who will. Rama. Why Rama? Why does he quote that? Why does Matthew stick it in this book where he's quoting all the time from the Old Testament? But of all the quotes, why this? You got to understand this. Rama was a border town between the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And in 722 B.C., when the Assyrians came to deport Israel, they brought them through the little town of Ramah. It was the deportation town before they left the land. And in 586, when Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonians came in to deport the two southern tribes, they deported everyone through the town Ramah. And once again, in this context, I'm being reminded of the disobedience to the covenant 
and the penalty that comes from disobedience. There's Rama. There's weeping. There's wailing because judgment has come. But I'm so thankful this text doesn't stop with Rama. I am thankful that even though Isaiah and Hosea and Micah and Jeremiah remind me of the disobedience of the people to the covenant and the need for someone who can save them from their sins, one who is the seed of the woman, one who is the son of man, one who is the son of God, one who is the Redeemer, one who is the covenant for the people. This one is the one that will take the punishment for their disobedience to the people, to the covenant. Covenant demands and a penalty for breaking it. Rama and deportation. Are you with me? I'm almost done, so don't leave me. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, go into the what? The land of Israel. Go to the land of Israel. Go to the promised land. Go to the place of your inheritance. Get to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And so Joseph got up took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel just as Joseph's descendants gathered his bones and took Joseph from the land of Egypt to the land of promise, the land of the inheritance. And we come to the final dream. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, Herod dies. The one who was made king by Rome dies. He has three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. Archelaus is placed over Judea, the southern kingdom, Antipas is placed over Galilee, and then Philip, a region that's north and on the other side of the river. But Archelaus was a wicked man just like his father Herod. And rather than settling in the regions of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, because of the fear that Archelaus could bring, they make their way north, nearly a hundred miles north of Bethlehem, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And as you trace the gospel account, he's referred to over and over again as Jesus from where? 
Nazareth, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he's hung on a cross. And Pilate writes, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. While there is no specific prophecy that says he shall be called a Nazarene, there are multiple prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures that deal with him fulfilling what a Nazarene's meaning is. While we are not absolutely certain, of the root word for Nazareth. It has been suggested that it comes from a Hebrew word, Natsar. And the verb of that word means this. It means to keep or to guard promises and covenants. And the noun form means a tender shoot or a branch. And I would submit to you today that you can read the genealogy of Jesus, a genealogy of the sin of His people. And I would have you see that they're called out of Egypt. And in Exodus 20, before the Ten Commandments are given, God says, I called you out of Egypt. Keep the covenant. And Deuteronomy 5, the second time he gives Ten Commandments, right before he gives them, he says, I called you out of Egypt. Keep my covenant. And he tells them if they don't keep the covenant, if they can't keep the promise, I'm going to scatter you among the nations. And as an illustration of the inability of man to keep the covenant, he scatters ten tribes by the hand of Assyrians around the world in 722 B.C. And Isaiah's preaching. And Hosea is preaching. And Micah is preaching. But all of them are promising a covenant keeper. And not there. And they're all talking about this root out of David. This branch. The one who is called in Jeremiah the branch of David, who is the Lord, our righteousness. And you might hear the weeping of Rama, but as you hear the weeping of Rama being reminded that people are suffering the consequences of their disobedience, I would take you to the cross of Christ. Where under the heavy hand of God, He bore the sin of His people. For God made him who knew no sin to be a sin offering for us 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You see, the covenant demands were given to Christ too. But unlike His people, He kept them. He kept the law in His humanity. All ten words. And then he went to Calvary and suffered the penalty for our disobedience to the covenant. He is the branch. He is the tender shoot of David. And he is the one who keeps covenant and promise. He's Jesus from Nazareth. Oh, what a story he tells us here. Whether you see Egypt as a redemption, the land as a promised inheritance, cries of Isaiah, the cries of Hosea, the cries of Micah, and the cries of all the prophets that speak of Christ as the branch and Christ as the one who keeps the covenant. You remember this season that he came for the first time to save his people from their sin. My friend, he's the only one that can save you. You won't, You know what the greatest concern I have? I think that most of our staff would say the same thing. I don't know you as well as God knows you. I don't know if there's someone here who's not looking to Christ for salvation. I don't know if there's someone here who's not bowed the knee to Jesus yet. I don't know that. But I beg you that if you have not called on the Lord to save you, if you have not put your faith and your trust and your hope in Jesus, that you would, even today. That you'd leave this place with the confidence that Christ is your Savior. He's the only one who can. He's able to, and He will, if you come and you call on Him. Please do. And those of you that have, and you've not followed the Lord in a public baptism, would you come to me and say, Preacher, I put my faith and trust in Jesus, but I've not publicly identified with Jesus in His death, in His burial, 
and his resurrection. Would you let me know? And we'll have a good old Duncan party. What a Savior we have. And I just scratched the surface of these two chapters. But if you look like an eagle up in the sky, you'll see that it's all about our inability to keep the covenant and the promise of the covenant keeper to come. I don't know why God allows it, but He does. He allows the obedience of Christ, and He allows the cross work of Christ to count for any and all who will trust Him. And that's beautiful. It's the story of the Bible. Let's pray together.